welcome to the SaaS Revolution Show. I'm your host, Alex Suma, and on this week's episode, I'm joined by CEO and co-founder of Segment, Peter Reinhardt. We recorded this episode at Slush in Helsinki at the Google Cloud for Startups booth, and I discuss with Peter Segment's bumpy road to product market fit and expanding into new regions. So we talk about his journey to product market fit, or Segment's journey to product market fit, and any pivots that they've had to work through and what we can learn from that. Uh, what he realized when they finally reached product market fit, what was the turning point for Segment to start expanding into new regions, and what he wished he'd known before expanding into new regions. So it's a great conversation with Peter, who's a, a great entrepreneur, has built an amazing company. Well, let's go on with the show. Welcome to the SaaS Revolution show, a special edition, as we are at Slush in Helsinki. Uh, and uh, today I'm joined by uh, Peter Reinhardt, who is the co-founder and CEO of Segment. Welcome, Peter. Thanks so much for having me. No, it's, uh, it, it's a pleasure. It's, um, it's been a few years since uh, we, we, we last met. Uh, you were at, uh, I think you were, were you the opening keynote or the, the, the second uh, opener at SASDOC 16, which was the first ever SASDOC? I think I was the second after the second. Owen from Intercom. Okay. Uh, yeah, very good. So I, I, I remember now. So. Uh, what has happened, or actually even before then, uh, let, let's, let's say, uh, for those that don't know, I'm, and I'm assuming most of our discerning audience uh, know who Segment are, know who you are, but just give us a little bit of introduction to, uh, to yourself and to Segment. Yeah, so uh, I studied aerospace engineering at MIT, uh, dropped out in my junior year and uh, started Segment with, with, my, uh, with my roommates. And uh, we had a little bit of a product market fit journey, which I'm happy to get into. Uh, but today we, uh, for the last six years, build customer data infrastructure. So we help companies manage all of the data flowing from all of their different customer touch points. We help unify that data, and then we fan that data out to all of their downstream destinations, whether that's analytics or email marketing or push notifications or data warehousing, et cetera. So uh, you can think of us as helping break down all the silos between all these different uh, customer touch points on web and mobile and, and so on. Um, and helping people manage all their first-party data. Uh, and, and can you just give us some sort of indication of uh, like some, some data points around uh, segments? So, uh, you know, what's the size of the company now? Uh, and, and also, uh, for background, like give us a little bit of, you know, what was the size of, of uh, segment, you know, when you spoke at SASDOC uh, 16? Is there any correlation between the growth and speaking at SASDOC? Uh, <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, how much money have you raised, et cetera? Give us some data points for the audience. Sure. So, uh, we really started hiring about six years ago. So it was just the four founders six years ago. Uh, three years ago when I spoke at SASDOC, I think we were about 125 people or so. Mm -hmm. uh, today we're about 500. Mm -hmm. uh, we're primarily based in San Francisco. Uh, that's our headquarters and we've got offices sort of sprinkled around the world for uh, customer facing roles and an engineering office in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. um, we've raised a bit shy of $300 million uh, to date in venture capital um, and um, you know started to I'm still primarily focused on North America, but really starting to expand into into Europe. So, you know, SaaS stock a few years ago was a, a key part of uh, kicking off and, and learning about the European market, and uh, that's obviously why I'm back here at Slush today. Awesome. And uh, yeah, so um, we, we're going to talk a little bit about your, your your bumpy road through you know defining product market fit. Um, as you you gave the introduction as to what the product is at, at segment today, but it wasn't necessarily what what it was when you started the the company with your your, your roommates. Uh, and, and then also this European expansion as well, because I think it's pretty interesting, uh, you know, for our audience. So let, let, let's let, let's start with the with, with the product market fit sort of question. So tell us about your journey to, to product market fit, and you know what was the initial kind of idea, uh, and how you you end up finding uh, product market fit eventually. 
So we actually started as a classroom lecture tool. Okay. <laughs> and uh, this is in 2011. And the idea was that we would give students this button to push to say, I'm confused. And the professor would see this graph over time of how confused the students were. And uh, we were super excited about it. Y Combinator uh, let us in with this idea. And we raised 600K at, at Demo Day on, on the backs of uh, the, all the code that we've written over the summer of YC, hundreds of thousands of lines of code. We were like deeply invested in this idea. And then we deployed it into the classroom as the fall semester started at uh, Boston University and MIT and Stanford and so on. And it was a total disaster. So all the students opened their laptops and they went straight to Facebook, straight to Flickr, Gmail, Twitter, you name it. It was uh, frankly pretty crushing. Uh, and we had to, you know, a week after we received wire transfers from these investors, had to call them back and, and say, hey, you know, like this turns out to be a really bad idea. <laughs> like, what do you want us to do with the money? And so a couple of them took their money back, which was quite reasonable. And, and the rest said, hey, we invested for the team. Uh, so go find something else. And so we spent about a year trying to build an analytics tool. Uh, we felt like we hadn't had proper insight into how uh, folks were using the tool. The way that we had figured out that it was really not working at all was actually by standing physically in the back of a classroom and counting laptop screens. We felt like we should have been able to do that with a digital analytics tool. So we tried to build a product there. It turns out the analytics space is incredibly crowded, right? There's dozens or even hundreds of analytics tools. It's really difficult to differentiate. And it's a, just a very niche kind of market, right? The best analytics tool in, for e small e-commerce companies in India is different than the best analytics tool for a public B2B SaaS company uh, in San Francisco. And uh, so about now a year and a half in, and we realized that we were really sort of deeply failing at finding product market fit. We had about 100K left in the bank. We had about six months left to runway still just the four of us, and we realized we sort of get like one more shot on goal in terms of finding product market fit. It's a pretty like deep low point for us. How did you feel personally as a founder with like 100K left of runway? Super and, scary, yeah. super scary. And we had this conversation with, uh, with Paul Graham at, at YC and, and we sort of brought him up to speed and we were walking around this little cul-de-sac by YC and he sort of stopped and looked at us. And he's like, so you spent $500,000 and you have nothing to show for it. Like yeah. crushing. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, pause there. If you rewind back to that very first week of Y Combinator in June 2011, we were trying to figure out how to get analytics on our classroom lecture tool, and we found Google Analytics, Kissmetrics, and Mixpanel. We couldn't figure out the difference between these. And so, we decided to just write this little JavaScript wrapper, this little JavaScript library that would send data to all three analytics tools. And then we'd like figure out which one was the best one later on by looking in the actual sort of view of the data. And we thought this was cool, 50 lines of code. We forgot about it among the hundreds of thousands that we were writing that summer. And four months later, if we look back, we can see we cleaned it up. Four months later, cleaned it up a bit more. And by that point, we were trying to build our own analytics uh, tool. And we kept encountering this objection in trying to sell the analytics tool, which was, well, I already have Mixpanel installed. So like, eh, I don't really want to go to the effort of installing your analytics tool. So my co-founder Ilya was like, well, what if we took that library we wrote a year ago that could send data to multiple analytics tools and added ourselves as another service that it could send data to? And then we could use that as a growth hack to like, get ourselves installed alongside these other tools. So we did that, and we started sending this library out to people. And people started starring the library on GitHub. And they started uh, issuing pull requests on GitHub. Like They were engaged in improving this thing. Finally, we get to this moment with Paul Graham. It's like, you failed. and. Uh, my co-founder Ian, we're trying to figure out what we're doing next. My co-founder Ian is like, you know what? I, I think there's a big business behind Analytics.js, uh, this open source library. And I was like, that is literally the worst idea I've ever heard. Like, I have no idea how that could be a business. It's already open source. It's like a few hundred lines of code. Like, it makes no sense. 
to this huge fight. Um, I went home and was like trying to figure out how to kill this idea and finally figured it out. Came in the next day. I was like, all right, guys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to build this beautiful landing page. It's really going to pitch the value of Analytics.js, this open source library. And we'll post it up to Hacker News and we'll see how the developer community responds to it. And I was saying this will definitely kill it. So we build the landing page, has an email sign up form at the bottom, post it on Hacker News. I start doing other things. Goes straight to the top of Hacker News, gets hundreds of upvotes, thousands of email signups. Uh, people are reaching out to us on LinkedIn demanding access to the beta. Uh, it was crazy. Like the whole thing just blew up overnight. And so I was obviously wrong. Like there's <laughs> obviously something here. Uh, and so we spent the next five days building out the hosted version mm -hmm. of this uh, analytics data routing tool and launched it on uh, December 17th, 2012. And by the end of that month, we had about 70 companies sending 20 events per second through the pipeline. Through, through the various sort of pivots from the original kind of lecture uh, you know, tool to, uh, to, to what, it, what it is now or, or that moment, were you always called se segment? Was it? No, we no? were class metric. Okay. And then we were segment.io. Okay. And then later on, we dropped the .io. Okay. Uh, and, and so for, for, for your journey, so at that moment, I think, I think you probably felt like, okay, uh, when you saw all the upvotes uh, you know, on, on Hacker News and all these kind of requests and everybody saying, like, this is a, a winning product, um, you know, did you feel then that, okay, that's it, you know, we, we've identified like, a problem that we originally perhaps didn't really kind of think was there, and you, you know, finally we, we, we have kind of product market fit. Was it... Did, like I guess you hadn't really started selling at, at that point, but did you feel like this is a product market fit aha moment, or do you do you not have product market fit until you actually start to see the paying customers? Uh, it, it was a very obvious product market fit yeah. moment for us. People were super supportive, very excited. Uh, we're clearly starting to adopt it. They were issuing pull requests to improve the library. Uh, we had these thousands of people who'd signed up who were like started emailing us immediately wanting to use the beta version of this thing which didn't mm -hmm. exist. It was very obvious that it had product market fit. Yeah. It was very unclear how much we could charge for it, yeah. but it was clear that it was something. And um, so we actually spent the following year after that just investing in basically free adoption. Okay. So we, we didn't really start charging for it. I think we were charging like $10 a month or something like okay. that, which we were terrified to ask for. Yeah. Um, we sent like apologetic emails <laughs> yeah. to every customer. <laughs> handwritten, uh, asking for $10 a month. <laughs> um, and uh, anyway, so we spent about a year just, just working on free adoption, building, improving the product, learning what it was that customers really wanted to get out of it, figuring out what the adjacencies were, you know, not just web data, but also mobile data and server-side data, not just analytics tools, but also email marketing tools and, and heat mapping tools and so on and so forth. And so sort of building out a much more complete product. And then we started really charging for it and, and monetizing. So, uh, and the, so after that year, um, then, and when you started charging it for it, monetizing it, how did you, uh, or what, where did the price point go from the $10 per month and, uh, you know, and, and feeling like you had to apologize to the customers to uh, that 12 months later, like, you know, what was the price point? How did you get there? Um, did you feel like apologetic at that time uh, as well? Yeah, we had, to, we had to learn a lot about price differentiation and how to package things so that people are paying more appropriately for the value that they're getting. So mm -hmm. we still have a huge free plan today with tens of thousands of, of customers on it. Mm -hmm. um, so we're excited about that. We have a startup program, which uh, gives a massive credit to startups for the first two years uh, and up to a funding limit to really like go deep uh, on using Segment. Um, but what we, what we found is that in the enterprise and, and sort of uh, mid-market and, and, and larger, um, there's a lot of willingness to pay, and it solves a huge problem for people to be able to unify and, and sort of manage all their customer data. And uh, so we had to go through a price discovery process. And the way that you do that as a B2B SaaS company selling into one of these mid-market enterprise co companies, 
is uh, you just keep doubling the price. So every sales conversation with one of these enterprises, you double the price from what you charged last time, uh, and you keep going until, until they push back. And in the moment that they push back is actually when you learn something. Um, and uh, we had this conversation with uh, one of our early enterprise customers. We had the sales advisor. And he's like, when you go into this conversation, you're going to ask for $100,000 a year. Uh, actually, $120,000 a year. And I was like, that's ridiculous. Like, that's absurd. We're charging $150 a year. I can't go and ask for a, a thousand times as much. And he's like, well, then I quit as your sales advisor. <laughs> I was like, okay. All right. I guess I will. Uh, <laughs> so we went into that meeting. Um, the customer asked, or a prospect asked, what, uh, you know, what the price was. And uh, I, I said $120,000. And I turned beet red. And uh, the um, CEO at the company uh, tur turned back and said, well, how about $18,000 a year? Uh, and I said, or he said 12000 I said, okay, well, how about 18000 He said, deal. So, you know, in his mind, it was 85% off. In my mind, it was 150x yeah. the previous price point. And I, I think without that discovery process, you, you don't know what the value is, right? And later, now we have uh, like a whole number of contracts in the, in the seven figures. Like, that's still a fraction of the value that we're delivering to, to those companies. So I think... Uh, as a B2B company, price discovery is incredibly important. Uh, and until you ask for the larger amount, you won't find out why not. And you won't find out really how people are valuing it. And therefore, you won't understand how to price it. And, and you were asking for, I mean, when you go into enterprise, you know, annual contracts. So like... Uh, yeah, yeah, one or three year contracts. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and, and how often did you, uh, what sort of percentage do you get for like multi-year contracts with, uh, with customers? Uh, Multi-year is a relatively small percentage, and yeah. it's usually on renewal. So yeah. usually the first contract is a year, and we you know, make them successful. Sometimes in really large enterprises where they know it's going to take them a while to deploy, it's really important for us to have a three-year contract. Like if they're doing a global rollout, um, they probably won't be able to roll it out in a year. Right? A startup can deploy same day. An enterprise to really roll out globally across may take a year and a half, two years. And so if you just do an annual contract, you're actually setting yourself up for a churn and for the customer to be unsuccessful and unhappy. So in some of these situations, a three-year contract is, is critical for the customer's success. So what, what would you say, like in summary, around your journey to product market fit would be your kind of key lessons that you learned that you could kind of share with, with our audience if they're at a similar stage, if they're looking to get product market fit, well, what is your, your lessons advice that you could provide there? The most important thing is to be really, truly honest with yourself about whether you have product market fit or not. And frankly, if it's not clear, then you don't. And it's a really hard thing to accept as a founder because you often feel like you're a half step away from product market fit. Like there's one more feature, one more integration, one tweak, and then we'll have product market fit. Um, I don't think product market fit is arrived at through tweaks. That's certainly not our experience. Uh, there's a lot of other companies where I don't think that was their experience as well, like Dropbox and Slack and Cookademy and pretty much every company that I, I know of that's had a successful product market fit. You don't arrive at it through tweaks. Yeah. Um, but it's a very alluring kind of path to go down that ends up wasting an enormous amount of time and runway. And so I think founders need to be very brutally honest with themselves about whether they do or don't, and probably don't. So, so let, let, let's switch into your, I, I guess, kind of European expansion or, or even uh, global expansion if, uh, if indeed you are beyond, beyond Europe. So um, at what point, um, you know, can you give some indicators at what, what point you decided to go uh, you know, into Europe. So was it, you know, a number of customers, certain amount of revenue, certain amount of capital kind of raised? Um, you, you know, ha when did you decide to expand beyond, I guess, your base is in uh, San Francisco, right? Yeah, headquarters in San Francisco. And because we sold uh, through developers, basically, mm -hmm. in, in, in startups, what, what happened pretty early on is that our footprint of customers was fairly global, right? Because 
all these people speak English and like are reading the same Hacker News thread and like that was where we were marketing and, and so we just reached a global uh, audience from, from almost day one. Um, that said, it's, it's really difficult to serve the, the whole globe from a customer success perspective. You can't have 24-7 support until your team gets to a certain size and so on and so forth. So uh, for us, it was a combination of a couple things. One, we felt like our customer base was, was dragging us uh, out there in the sense that there was a huge number of self-service customers that we already had in Europe. Uh, often who wanted better support, who wanted maybe to actually pay us more and use it more broadly, but we didn't have the, the people in place to, to make that happen. And then two, we got to a stage where we felt like we had the capital and the team size and so forth to actually make the jump and make the investment in, in having technical support and customer success managers and salespeople in Dublin and London. So uh, for us, it was the combination of those two things. And I feel like we really had to hold back for a while uh, until we were really ready to invest in it. Why did you choose uh, um, uh, Dublin and London? Why not one or the other? Yeah, what we found, in at least at the moment that we were doing it, what we were finding is that the sort of SaaS companies that were 12 to 24 months ahead of us uh, had all looked at the combination and said, hey, in Dublin is actually where a lot of the commercial sales and customer success and uh, technical support talent is, um, that it's a magnet where you can really pull from all across Europe in into, uh, into Dublin. Whereas London is really where sort of more enterprise, that's where the bulk of enterprise customers are, uh, where the largest sort of pocket of enterprise customers are, and therefore that's where all the really experienced enterprise field sales reps are. Uh, and so that was the sort of natural split. And of, of course, eventually you end up with you know, field sales all over continental Europe. Uh, and um, Most companies seem to end up with commercial sales uh, based out of uh, Dublin, at least from the sort of research that we had done. So it was more based on the sort of best practices and um, which seemed to make sense. Which us. one was first? Did you do them simultaneously? We started in Dublin. Okay. Yeah, and then pretty shortly after, landed the first person in London. Uh, and who, who was the first person on the ground from Segment in, in Europe, in, in Dublin? Did you send somebody over you know, from the team? Yeah, we sent over a, uh, a senior sales manager, yep. um, a business operations mm -hmm. uh, person, and uh, a sales engineer who had become a, a sales rep to open London. So we sent over a team of three, mm -hmm. I think, three or four, uh, and um, you know, make sure that we sort of brought the, the core of the segment culture with us. Yeah. And then uh, obviously they've sprouted their own unique aspects of the culture, which is amazing to see. But um, but yeah, we've, we've now made our 50th hire in, in Dublin. I'm super excited about that. Excellent. And, and so what are your, um, what, what challenges did you have around, I, I guess, kind of expanding uh, in, into Europe, uh, you know, if any, or, or, or again, I, I guess you can spin it like the lessons learned from expanding, you, you know, from the US into Europe. Yeah, I think the, the North American market is, is uh, very homogeneous in some ways. Um, it has sort of an early adopter to laggard kind of curve as you move throughout the, the country. Obviously, a lot of the uh, fastest moving tech companies are based in the sort of hubs of San Francisco, LA, and New York. Uh, by comparison, you have the similar kind of like uh, early adopter to laggard hub network in, in Europe, uh, but you have the additional complexity of, of language. And I think that's something that we underappreciated. Uh, in, in coming to Europe and haven't really been ready, uh, frankly, historically to invest in, in real like language support for French mm. and German and so on. Um, and so I think that's an area that is, is still somewhat challenging for us because you know, as soon as you decide, oh, we're going to translate our marketing materials and website into French and German and so on and so forth, well, now there's an expectation that support people speak those languages. There's an expectation that the sales rep speaks those languages. Um, and so you, you have to stand up this entire new structure within the company, which is uh, frankly a lot of complexity to add. So I think that's one of the more challenging aspects that we're seeing uh, in Europe. 
Uh, and what about yourself as CEO? Obviously, you're, you're in Europe uh, as we, we speak. Um, and um, how often are you traveling over to meet with the team, to get involved in hiring, uh, to visit customers? Yeah, I met a, a CEO recently of, a, of another unicorn uh, who, who told me that he flies 400,000 miles a year. Okay. Uh, that was mind-blowing. I'm not anywhere close to that. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I think there's a, there's a certain amount of traveling out to see the team and traveling out to see key customers, traveling out to, to understand the market uh, that is required. And uh, I think it's an investment not just by the CEO and founders, but it's an investment by the exec team uh, to really understand the sort of global presence. And what about the, you, obviously, you know, uh, segment R, you know, it's one company, it's a global company, but you have a Europe team, you know, the US team. Um, for the culture side of things, like, you know, how do you kind of keep this unified and, uh, together? Yeah, I think the most important thing is seeding it. Um, and so that comes both with the initial landing team uh, and then also with ensuring that senior leaders are interviewed for the region are, are interviewed as well back in, uh, back in San Francisco. So... Uh, I, those are probably the two most important things. Um, and then, you know, culture permeates through a lot of things. It permeates through how people are rewarded, how people are recognized at all hands, how people uh, are promoted, uh, how they're fired, how, um, how performance reviews are, happen. A lot of these things are not uh, time zone or regional. A, a lot of them are global in the sense of like all hands and performance reviews and, and so on and so forth. Um, so I think those things uh, tend to, to propagate a little bit of it as well. I think it's actually a cool thing that you end up with variants on the culture in each region and maybe even important um, just because in different regions you have different cultures and different things are, are important uh, in those areas. So you, you end up with some variability, but I think that's a good thing. Um, let, let, let's sort of end, like, final two questions back to, uh, back to you uh, as an individual. So now, obviously, you're, you're, you're a CEO of, uh, uh, of a unicorn scale-up company. Um, how has it been for you to like learn to suddenly, you know, you're, you're, you're uh, running an organization of 500 people, you know, dealing with, um, with uh, I guess, not having like imposter syndrome, but knowing that, you know, I am the best person for this job. Uh, how, what have you done to kind of learn to kind of, you know, constantly ensure that you are the best person, you, you know, for, for the job? Because uh, there's a lot of pressure, right? Uh, well, you've got the 300 million raise, you've got 500 people, you know, obviously the, the IPO probably, uh, you know, will be uh, uh, next up, right? Um, how, how has it been for, for you in that kind of learning to be a CEO? Uh, I, I don't know if I ever have told myself uh, I'm the best person for this job. I, I think my approach is maybe more of like a, a slope of am I getting better? towards being able to do this job. Um, and I think uh, what, I, what I find is about once every six months or so, uh, I have this very disorienting moment where I come into the office, I answer the two or three emails that are in my inbox, which is very light. And then I look at my calendar and there's like a blank spot for like four hours. And it's very disorienting. I look at my to-do list, there's nothing to do. So there's like this moment that happens every six months where I don't have anything to do. And it's, it's awkward and uh, you look around and you're like, I hope no one notices that I don't have anything <laughs> to do right now, right? Um, but, but I think that those are the moments actually that are, that are these really critical sort of learning moments and really critical moments for the growth of the company where it means actually that the, the company is, is like running and, and doing its thing and, and uh, things are appropriately delegated and like it's, it's running. Yep. And that's the moment at which you as a founder CEO, I think can, uh, or at least I find I can step back, step outside of the company, look back at the company and say, what does the next level look like? How, how can we, what do we need to change about the company? What do we need to add into the company in order to take it to, to the next stage of growth? And 
Um, so I think it's really important to have those moments. And uh, I find those are the big moments of growth for me where my job changes from running sales to trying to figure out how to, how to market, trying to figure out the competitive landscape as Adobe and Salesforce for us now are, are entering our space. Um, so the, the, these, these shifts, I think, are, are, can be momentous for the, for the founder CEO. And, and how do you stay healthy and sane uh, you, you know, <laughs> during this journey and, and, and running segment? What's your way? Uh, actually, recently, my co-founder Calvin introduced me to this uh, this app called Aptive, and uh, it has a bunch of like audio uh, workouts, um, ten to twenty minutes long, and it's actually perfect for a hotel room. So uh, when on the road, I uh, just try to try to actually work out and and uh, and stay healthy that way. Cool. Yeah, I've seen it on Instagram, but haven't downloaded it yet. Yeah, but, uh, we'll it's worth look, a shot. Look into it. All right. Well, Peter Reinhardt, uh, CEO of Segment. Uh, great having you on the SaaS Revolution Show. Hopefully, see you at the SaaS conference soon. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the SaaS Revolution Show with Peter Reinhardt, CEO and co-founder of Segment. And if you like this episode, we'd appreciate it if you uh, rated and reviewed us on iTunes. Next up for SASDOC, we are in Sydney on December the 3rd and the 4th, uh, bringing the Australia New Zealand SAS community together uh, with our startup programs, our boot camps, uh, our conference, uh, and of course, uh, SASDOC at night. So it's going to be great if you're in uh, Sydney, in Australia or New Zealand, uh, join at uh, sasdoc.com forward slash Australasia to get your ticket and uh, hopefully see you there.